The following podcast is banned in the state of Florida for talking about a dangerous leftist book, the Bible. Like the Bible, this podcast contains frank discussions on sensitive topics, including sex, violence, and cursing. Please proceed with caution. Jesus said, If you want to be complete, go, sell what you own, and give the money to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. This is the word in black and red. And welcome to The Word in Black and Red, where we read the Bible from a leftist and liberationist perspective to elucidate the way people of faith and their comrades can understand the Bible as a source of healing, love, and liberation for all people. I'm your host, Michael Belong, the wise old llama, and be joined today by the wonderful Laz and Ronnie. These are some wonderful pastors that are doing incredible work out in the world, and we're going to talk more about the queer liberation that we are doing together. But first, we're going to dive into this text where we have clergy that are, oops, all queer, uh, <laughs> to talk about this passage. <laughs> to talk about this passage that has historically been used to use and abuse people like us. And so we are going to reread this passage in light of what the text actually has to tell us and from a liberationist and leftist perspective. Genesis 19, 1-28. The two messengers entered Sodom in the evening, Lot, who was sitting at the gate of Sodom, saw them, got up to greet them, and bowed low. He said, Come to your servant's house, spend the night, and wash your feet. Then you can get up early and go on your way. But they said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. He pleaded earnestly with them, so they went with him and entered his house. He made a big meal for them, even baking unleavened bread, and they ate. Before they went to bed, the men of the city of Sodom Everyone from the youngest to the oldest surrounded the house and called to Lot, Where are the men who arrived tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may have sex with them. Lot went out toward the entrance, closed the door behind him, and said, My brothers, don't do such an evil thing. I've got two daughters who are virgins. Let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them whatever you wish. But don't do anything to these men because they are now under the protection of my roof. They said, Get out of the way, and they continued. Does this immigrant want to judge us? Now we will hurt you more than we will hurt them. They pushed Lot back and came close to breaking down the door. The men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house with them and slammed the door. Then the messengers blinded the men near the entrance of the house, from the youngest to the oldest, so that they groped around trying to find the entrance. The men said to Lot, Who's still with you here? Take away from this place your sons-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and everyone else you have in the city, because we are about to destroy this place. The Lord has found the cries of injustice so serious that the Lord sent us to destroy it. Lot went to speak to his sons-in-law, married to his daughters, and said, Get up and get out of this place, because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. When dawn broke, the messengers urged Lot, Get up and take your wife and your two daughters who are here so that you are not swept away because of the evil in this city. He hesitated, but because the Lord intended to save him, the men grabbed him, his wife and two daughters by the hand, took him out and left him outside the city. After getting them out, the men said, Save your lives, don't look back, and don't stay in the valley. 
Escape to the mountains, so that you are not swept away. But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please. You've done me a favor and have been so kind to save my life. But I can't escape to the mountains, since the catastrophe might overtake me there, and I'd die. This city here is close enough to flee to, and it's small. It's small, right? Let me escape there, and my life will be saved. He said to Lot, I'll do this for you as well. I won't overthrow the city you have described. Hurry, escape to it. I can't do anything until you get there. That is why the name of the city is Zoar. As the sun rose over the earth, Lot arrived in Zoar, and the Lord rained down burning asphalts from the skies onto Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord destroyed these cities, the entire valley, everyone who lived in the cities, and all of the fertile land's vegetation. When Lot's wife looked back, she turned into a pillar of salt. Abraham set out early for the place where he had stood with the Lord, and looked out over Sodom and Gomorrah, and over all the land of the valley. He saw the smoke from the land rise like a smoke from a kiln. I think one of the reasons I hate that this scripture has been used specifically as a clobber passage against homosexuality and queerness is that there's so much tragedy here. There is so much yikes in this passage to unpack. And we have dumbed it down by targeting this group of minorities that really the passage isn't even saying anything about. And all that to say, like, this is a heavy passage filled with great tragedy. And I would be remiss to dive into what that tragedy is speaking to without first just acknowledging that it sucks and it's heavy. Yeah, it's talking about the destruction of an entire city that, um, or two entire cities, right, that um, it is a tragedy no matter what's happening, right? Just the just the sheer amount of death that's going on there. Last time we were talking with Laz and Pastor Sarah about this, the story that we knew was coming, Laz had a lot of feelings about the justice of this <laughs> that I think are, are worth exploring a little bit as well here. But I think that here within the logic of the story, it's really worth pointing out what's going on here and what's just behind the cultural norms that, that are happening here, where when Lot is sitting at the gate of Sodom, He's sitting outside where everyone who is foreign to this place has to go through because, presumably, he knows what happens to people when they come in to this city. And the angels come in here expecting that they'll be able to spend the night in the town square. Now, in ancient Near Eastern cultures, this was super common. If you didn't have somewhere to stay, you didn't need to get a hotel because you would be safe in the town square. The town presumably had walls around it, and the square was in the center. It was the place where things were happening. Happening. It was the place where you could be safe for the night if you needed to stay there. And because of the hospitality norms of that era, you could expect to find a meal there as well. Not a restaurant that you have to go in and pay at, but someone who probably lived around the town square because they liked to be good people who took care of people who stayed in the town square. And instead of being able to go to the town square where they are hoping, like remember from this story, they are looking for 10 good people in the city. And they're going to the town square expecting the nicest people in the town are going to live here because they're trying to be the people who are taking care of people who come into this area. And they can't even go to the town square because Lot says, this is going to be so terrible. Please come into my house instead. I think, yeah, it's really important here to talk about, like, 
why don't we just talk about it head on? Talk about the, like, this is the clobber passage. I think would scripture be so much easier if it was so crystal clear in this passage as the conservatives, you know, anti-liberationists <laughs> like want us to say, this is about queerness. And like, so if you are queer, we're just going to smash your city. Right. You know, I, I remember uh, what preacher, there was some preacher or prophet, somebody, somebody who, who kept declaring that the hurricane Katrina was caused because of new Orleans is like embrace of uh, queerness. Right. Yeah. Pat, so- Pat Robertson. Pat Robertson, but like, if this was the way that the world worked, boy, would it be a whole lot easier to be a person in society. Like, our whole <laughs> would be so much simpler, right? It'd be very crystal clear. Follow these rules and you have a good life, right? Do these things. Don't do these things. Here you will survive and thrive. Here you will die, period, Right. I, you know, and I understand the fundamentalists and the conservatives want to cling to that real hard by inventing things that aren't in the text. But none of that Mm -hmm. is in the text. Right. Like, in fact, (laughs) like, you know, there's no evidence that anybody's queer. It's about power, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But like homosexuality isn't mentioned in here. And we assume that these angels are for some reason. It's so weird. We assume that these angels are men because they're like sometimes they talk (laughs) about them as like figures but like we don't actually know right like mm-hmm. we don't know like in the story it, it they could be dressed as like muppets from sesame street right like you don't actually know <laughs> you know and like because they're, like, they're quickly identifies as strangers so they look weird in some way our texts always talk about people being afraid of the angels it's just that people in these like situation weren't particularly they were they were so afraid they want to claim power or like something right but so like I don't know. If it was about queerness, I want a description of how hot these angels are. And I I want to know about like what these angels, like, like why these particular men were so insatiable to men and women alike across this, you know, everyone across this culture. Like I, but it doesn't tell us that. So I'm not convinced. Like, and also I don't know in our text, like, we do talk about, like, Nephilim not that far behind, you know, so, like, so so in some, there has got to be some tr- Near East tradition about that angels and humans can, like, you know, have, have adult fun together, but it doesn't say that. We, we know other things about angels, too. All I'm saying is, I'm not convinced, like, who's to say that it even could be about homosexuality, because we don't know if anybody can, like, assault these angels, like, uh, you know, we just don't. So I just think it's such a weird, it's such a weird flex because you're making so many assumptions and like, and and the world is not that simple. God's world isn't that simple then or now. So anyway. Longtime listener, you remember that canonically speaking, uh, according to this podcast, we do take the position that there are angels that instead of all covered in eyes are actually just all boobs all the way down. So like, I understand you know, wanting to get freaky with one of those. But um, as the local ace, I'm just going to say, I don't. Y'all, <laughs> y'all have fun. I have no understanding of that whatsoever. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> I recorded an entire episode about God's breast, but it happens. So. <laughs> well, and, and just to feed to that point, right, in verse four, 
you see, before they went to bed, the men of the city of Sodom. Now, that word men is a category that could mean all the people of the city. But we, in the English, we read it as just the men rather than the people of the city of Sodom, right? Ronnie, I see you're you're getting up in arms about this, so I'm going to let you come in and make the point better than I can. But the men of the city of Sodom, and then it clarifies everyone from the youngest to the oldest. Not just the men, but this catch-all category that is qualifying as all the people of the city. And also, hi, we're going to say some trigger warning words here. This was a rape. It doesn't matter, like, if they had succeeded, obviously they did not. This would not have been a relationship This would have been a gang rape of immigrants. And to to further press that point and to further push how this is so obviously not talking about queerness, in the book of Judges, just a few books down the line, there is a story that is sort of the culmination of Israel's failure as a nation to follow God. Because uh, Judges is this sort of cyclical book where you see the people fail, fall, sin, a enemy, a national enemy is introduced as punishment, and then a judge rescues them and brings them back to God. And every time it gets a little bit worse. And then this capstone of this cycle is when a man comes into the area with his his concubine and just like this is not safe to sleep in the town square is brought into somebody's home and the entire town surrounds the house and is like bring them out and they actually do send out the concubine and she is murdered and in order to demonstrate how truly awful this is another trigger warning dismemberment the man cuts the corpse into pieces and mails them to the 12 tribes to say like this is what we've become and it's it is considered shameful and it is supposed to point back to this story and in that this story it is nothing about in judges it's nothing about the gender of the person who is assaulted and killed it is about the absolute failure on every level as a society to take care of the vulnerable, and it resulting in death. Yeah, I, I think it's also worth pointing out the fact that like we can look back and talk about the fact that the ancients are talking about whether or not angels even have genders, right? So like this whole assumption that this story is about homosexuality, it has a contrasting story where it tells us that this is not about homosexuality. It is not clear from the text that the men of the city are actually just the men, it's not clear from the text that the angels are are men, and we have a proof text that tells us it's not about homosexuality. It reads the story as it stands, and Ezekiel 16, 49 through 50 tells us, this is the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were proud, had plenty to eat, and enjoyed peace and prosperity, but she didn't help the poor and the needy. They became haughty and did detestable things in front of me, and I turned away from them as soon as I saw it. So, Like, this story, we know what's happening here, that an immigrant comes in here, and and then they have the audacity to come here and say, does this immigrant want to judge us? Which, of course, has no modern parallels or corollaries in any way. But Yeah, no, we've never dealt with uh, with 
being generous to the foreigner or struggling with immigration as a concept. We've, we've got that <laughs> on lock. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. America, definitely the place you want to come to if you're not from here. Um. <laughs> I have a wild theory. This is not my, y'all, this is not my canonical for sure opinion, but let me see if I can work it out. I really want to make this train. So we're looking at the oppressed, but I really am trying to preach this on the underside. And so I think that our oppressed persons in this, if they're not Lot's daughters, would be your angels, right? Yeah. Well, and I love that idea that <laughs> that trans folks have shown up in the world to be God's angels to a church that doesn't want us, right? And I've spent a lot of time with these lovely folks trying to come to terms with the fact that I am trans, and that is a weird thing to say. But, you know, the, the fact that, that we exist— to to challenge the church in this time, right? And I love the idea that the angels are sent here to challenge the city. And how does the city respond? Well, the same way that the city responds to homeless LGBTQ youth now. I don't know how many folks know this, but I work with uh, people experiencing homelessness, right? I've been doing a deep dive into LGBTQ homelessness and the statistics of LGBTQ homelessness and the kinds of risks that we face when we are forced to live without a home. And we are the most likely people to be sexually assaulted. We are the most likely people to face discrimination because of our sexuality and our status as a homeless person. We are the most likely to suffer from more severe mental health issues like PTSD. We are, I think that trans men are four times more likely than the average man to experience PTSD. And trans women are three times more likely than the average woman to experience PTSD, right? Like, all of those statistics are because the city of Sodom doesn't understand us, and so they respond with violence, specifically sexual violence, where the reason that it points out the men of the city of Sodom is because they are trying to point out that the men are trying to dominate their guests rather than welcome them in. They're trying to basically rape them out of town. And it is not about, just as Ronnie was saying, it's not about love, it's not about mutualistic homosexual relationships, it's not about any of that. It's about saying, we are more powerful than you, and so you're going to submit to us. Yeah, the sexual violence is the shock part, right? And it is the part that captures, I think, the modern imagination because it's so graphic. I think we can put that part of it on a shelf. We're not getting rid of it, but we're not focusing on it for a second because it's what gets focused on all the time. And and really focus in on what you said, Micah, that this is not about love. It's about power. Mm-hmm. This is not about, this really isn't even about sex. Mm-hmm. This is about oppression. And that is supported by how Sodom and Gomorrah are remembered in, in the other passages that we discussed. And I think a thing that I don't even know if it fits in this part of the conversation, but I want to include because it is important to me. You know, we, we talk a lot about how the city was completely wiped out, everyone dead, things like that. I want to just go ahead and be cognizant of the fact that that's literally that's probably literally not true for one thing that's that's a crazy a crazy amount of destruction uh but for another this is 
a hyperbole that is used frequently in the Old Testament to describe the conquest of God's enemies. You know, we also see as Israel is conquering Canaan under Joshua, all of these various tribes, and it says like, and we killed them all, they're all dead. And then in the next book, there they are. (laughs) <laughs> interacting with the uh with the people of israel and if they were all dead uh they probably couldn't do that so it is talking about the totality of the conquest it is not necessarily literally saying and every human being lost their life that day and especially in the context of this story the reason that is important to me is because this is a story about power and oppression and it is important to me to hold on to the hope that those oppressed in the city were able to find healing and find a find a new place and speaking of the oppressed i also want to go back to what laz was saying and yeah can we talk about what lot does to his daughters yeah <laughs> yeah before we do i think you're something to point out when you're talking about like what that totality means this is paralleled to the story of Noah mm-hmm. because for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, like if you are an ordinary person living your little life in Sodom and Gomorrah, you don't have Google Maps, right? And so you can't see like your life is these two little places, right? And we know that there's stuff not that far away, but it's separated by some stretch of desert, right? There are traitors, you know that people exist. But for when we'll talk about it, but when they actually go to flee, right, they are fleeing all of civilization, though they're not really right. But they and they go to a cave. So when we talk about the totality, it's such an interesting point that you're mentioning conquest there, because the totality of the people, yeah, being destroyed are all of these conquests of people. Because again, if I'm an ordinary person, I'm I wasn't necessarily involved and and and. You know, but yeah, I'm I'm a I'm victimized here. And so is everyone else I've ever met, probably, because everyone else I know is again, we don't have the internet, we don't have Google Maps, like we don't have cars, we probably don't even have camels, you know, like if I'm just ordinary whoever, like I'm not going anywhere. I'm in Sodom and Gomorrah, you know. Well, and I to continue on the point about power and oppression, you know, when in, in the New Testament, I think that if we do think that there are passages where homosexuality is actually condemned, it is this kind of homosexuality, right? It is just the cultural practice in Greece where an older man sexually abuses a younger man, right? Now, we see in the story of Jesus, right, the centurion and his pais, his pais is probably his boyfriend, his younger lover, but the centurion is going out there with a self-sacrificial relationship, going to this Jewish guy that would have cost him a lot of face to go and see, and asks, can you heal my pais, my boyfriend, my, now, the Bible often translates this as servant. It shouldn't. But, <laughs> you know, there there is a profound difference between those kinds of relationships where the Pais's relationship, his faith, his faithfulness heals his family. Here instead, the abuse of power, the seeking to destroy the people who are from the outside results in the destruction of everyone on the inside, right? And specifically pointing to, does this immigrant want to judge us? And then going 
going on to saying, oh, because he's from the outside, he can't be here. And then it goes on to say that everything was destroyed, even the fertile land around the city. It wasn't just that the city is destroyed. All of the life that could have existed around it was destroyed as well because of their self-centeredness and focus on themselves. And this story, it is so important to note, is probably being written and put together in the Babylonian captivity right after the leaders of Israel and Judah have been so cruel to the outsiders, have been so terrible to immigrants, have been so terrible to the poor in their own country. They have used and abused their own people. They have set up these false gods of riches and splendor for themselves. They have used and abused the the children of the poor to expand their empire. And what has it resulted in? The destruction of the entire kingdom and the victimization of all the people, the innocent people who live in Israel and are suddenly cast away like refugees being taken into Babylon. So these parallels are all over the place, right? We see the parallel in Judges. We see the parallel in Noah. But I think that one of the most important parallels to keep in the back of our mind here is that this story is ultimately about the selfish few who result in the destruction of everything around them. I'd I'd really like to focus a bit on, on some of the other, the victims that we do see in the story a lot when this great tragedy happens and this this whole town is trying to break down his door to assault these visitors lazarus's response is take my daughters instead lots response lots response is take my daughters instead sorry i can see their name right in front of me (laughs) and so it's just the the L name that is popping in. I promise I have no interest in kidnapping anyone's daughters or <laughs> anyone's daughters as property. I, I, in fact, don't believe any of your children are property. Oh, sorry, Ronnie. Go ahead. No, you're good. And I, I actually think that you speak really beautifully to it because that children, children as property thing is exactly what we're grappling with, where Lot is saying, do this damage to me and my household. Mm-hmm. instead of these foreigners. So who really suffers there? Who actually suffers there? Obviously, the marginalized who are seen as property. Yeah. And I don't want to steal thunder from y'all when y'all are going to be talking about Lot's daughters later because their story gets wet and wild in a totally different way. I wonder how much of this story, like, Obviously, we we understand that the construction of a biblical narrative is done with intent, right? And this is the intent of an ancient writing where we are recounting this event and why it exists and it is a moral lesson. And we are not necessarily ever really invited into the personal lives of these characters. We don't know them beyond these mentions, but I have been a daughter thrown under the bus before, you know, certainly not in this way. My parents are lovely people, but I have felt the betrayal of, oh, my kid can do that, Mm -hmm. of being volunteered, of being used in, in the family dynamic, because that's what's expected of you. And there's got to be some family trauma wrapped up in that. I I don't know what to make of this, but 
lot lies in a really weird way. First off, it's weird that you would offer up your daughters to a crowd, right? But Sodom is not a very big city. Presumably, they know his daughter's husbands. Like, they are married. In verse 14, he speaks to his son-in-laws, married to his daughters. And yet up here, he says, I have two daughters who are virgins. So I don't know what to make of this strange lie. But their value here is just in their commodification, right? Is just how they can be used in this way that... um, Can I pose the question there? Yes. Like, is or isn't, and how, is Lot working for liberation of the people from the tyranny that is, like, the tyranny of power that's happening around by offering the daughters? Like, Like, is there a liberationist way to say to say though we've lot made some strange choices this is the right and moral decision do like do we cast lot here as a liberation or an attempt to be a liberator though it failed right because evil won the day and power and you know power hungriness won the day like is it that like our hero fails yet again you know because a lot of god's heroes fuck up more than they do right and that's thus the story of humanity you know like how do you in this moment like how do we, where do we find liberation in this text? This, I do, I have no idea how hot a take this is. Uh, <laughs> it is hard for me to paint Lot in any kind of sympathetic light in oh, this yeah. story. Um, because, like, he does this good thing, right? He takes in these strangers because he knows what will happen to them if they try to stay in the town square. But we also know that he doesn't want to leave. Yeah. He hesitates. He has to be dragged out of Sodom and Gomorrah by angels as the destruction happens. And when the angels are like, get as far away as you can, he's like, no, I can't do it. I can't go on another journey. Let me go to the town, the next town over. It's small. They won't bother you. And so there is a a question in my mind of how Lot saw his role versus what Lot was actually becoming. Mm-hmm. Because I know, again, from from experience in the evangelical tradition, that it is very easy to say, I can fix them. I can be the good one that is a good example and make things right. Because all the while, actually, it's a lot more comfortable to be the best person in a room full of corruption than to actually address the corruption going on inside of you. I absolutely agree with you there that I think it's really hard to redeem Lot. I I, want to offer two thoughts, I think, to answer Laz's question. First, where do we see liberation in this story? Uh, the Nazis all get killed. Um, like that, that is honestly the only good part of this story that I see is that these people who were committed to the murder of outsiders, with the strange exception of Lot, seem to get what's coming to them, right? Where they, because they love the fatherland so much, the fatherland is entirely destroyed. That seems to be the only sort of liberation message that I get, that the bad guys get their comeuppance. But I do think that Lot, like, we have to remember the fact that uh, in the ancient world, there is no concept of the afterlife, right? Your afterlife is your progenity, is is your offspring. And here, Lot does not have any male offspring, so his progenity goes through these daughters who 
are being offered up here. So he is offering up his virginity. He's offering up his continued existence as a human being. I think we can see that, but it, it is really hard for me to read that over and against he is throwing two people to the wolves who he really ought to be protecting, who are victims in this terrible way. We'll continue this conversation on Lot's daughters, but I think it's also worth asking, why in the world is Lot the only foreigner that they seem to allow into the city? The major story that we saw last time with Lot is that Abraham and Lot were separating from each other because both Abraham and Lot had so many cattle and so many servants that the land literally could not sustain them, and so Lot left and went to Sodom and Gomorrah. And I think, Laz, your point on why is it that Lot seems to be clinging here, because all of his wealth is now tied down to the city, right, where he is allowed to be in the city because he is immensely wealthy, and suddenly the the immigrant focus gets thrown back in his face as soon as he tries to use something other than his wealth to influence the population. I think it is telling to me that Lot is not saved because of Lot's goodness. Lot is saved because of Abram's concern. And it is, it is credited as a thing that God does in mercy for Abram, for Abraham, for this, this covenant. And we've already at length talked about how, frankly, like Abraham kind of sucked too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yet Abraham was someone who believed God and who f- receives this promise. And so I I think it is important to recognize that everybody at some point thinks that they're the hero when they're not. I think it's very likely that Lot really did think he was doing what was best and what was good and what was right and wouldn't turn down something, you know, it, it working out for him in some way as well. But I think it just serves to drive home the point that the angels couldn't find 10 good men. They couldn't even find one but they saved Lot because Lot was important to Abraham. And then, of course, you don't just have the daughters that uh, terrible things happen to. You also have Lot's wife. Yes. And uh, I really want to hear Laz's whole, like, fire it at me, Laz. I know that you have a ministry called Lot's Wife, (laughs) and I've not heard your take on this. So I'm, like, buckled up and ready to go. (laughs) <laughs> Ronnie, you seriously haven't heard my, we've been friends for so long now. And I feel like you, you have, we have heard one another's hot takes for years. Like, <laughs> huh. Okay. So I do in fact have a ministry called Lot's Wife Trans and Queer Chaplaincy, intentionally named for this extremely weird passage, right? So my ministry is named because like, I want to just incorporate the Sodom and Gomorrah story, you know, talking about how like, this isn't about homosexuality, right? It's about power and, you know, inhospitality. But you can't just name your thing. Sodom and Gomorrah isn't about homosexuality ministries, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. gay ministries, right? Like, they just feel like that's too much. I'm super curious to hear. So, Ronnie, make a mark so that you can tell me, and, and Micah, too. And I know, like, Ephemeral's on here. Like, like uh, our, our, some of our other folks, I'd love people to, like, write in the podcast and tell me what you were taught about what Lot's wife in your conservative traditions that you came from, why God turned Lot's wife into salt. Actually, go ahead, Ronnie. I remember it being about her regretting leaving. Mm-hmm. It was about the fundamentalist 
lesson that I was taught was she hesitated, right? She she didn't want to leave. She was more tied to the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is hilarious since I literally just talked about how entrenched Lot was. But <laughs> Lot gets out. Right. Without getting turned into a pillar of salt. But of course, it's always the woman's fault. Yeah, so that's not as actually as horrific of a take that feels a little more progressive than some of them, but it's still pretty rough, right? For all of the reasons, right? Uh, that's, a, that's a big blame women, right? Something goes wrong, it's the lady fault. All right, Micah, what did you grow up with? Well, I think it was a little bit of that where, like, you want to go back to your life of sin, and so you look back, you look back even once, and you will be forever destroyed. But I think that I, I also definitely heard that she was horny as hell for Sodom, like that that this was a lustful looking back, that like she wanted Sodom and Gomorrah more than she wanted her husband, and so uh, was cheating on her husband in this moment that she turned around and therefore became this pillar of salt because she was bitter about. Yeah. Uh, having to leave her true lover. Horny for Sodom is a, is a fascinating thing because those same people talk about it um, being about homosexuality. So she's like, you know, the most like annoying batch, like annoying straight person at like a drag show. <laughs> um, if in their take, um, which is a thing they all probably have done, but also, you know, turn around and then try to ban drag shows. Yeah. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, I think interpretations that I have heard are things like, yeah, she did something evil, right? Like she inherently has sin, but like we don't, she, she's not talking about like, this, you know, we've been talking about what it wasn't that we skipped all of these mentions of like what she's doing wrong in the, in the story. We, she doesn't even have a name because she's so just not, uh, tradition has given her a name, but like, she doesn't have a name in the text. And so like, that like being taught that she's evil is silly because it's not it's coming from nowhere other than we've just decided women are evil and sinful i was taught that yeah she disobeyed her husband right because they were told not to turn around she disobeyed her husband who told her you know who he would have conveyed the message and you know and, and and therefore disobeyed god by disobeying her husband and so god punished her by turning into assault or instead of being lustful right about the city which is a fascinating one that she was addicted to shopping. It's a very like <laughs> that the real problem with us women folk. I mean, I'm non-binary, but I was raised as a woman. The real problem with you know about with the ladies is that they just love the shopping, and you have to know they have the best mall and the fanciest Nordstroms in Sodom, and you know the best shoe store in Gomorrah. Don't you know? And she just couldn't give up her shopping to go and flee to safety. I wish that I was joking, but I'm not. Um, so, okay. So all of those are terrible takes that have nothing to do with the text, right? No, but, it, but, but to give credit, it is weird, right? Like she does turn around and she's turning this pillar of salt, but we have to recognize that it like is a pillar of salt and that this isn't a real thing. Like they, like there is no like lady shaped pillar you can go visit when you go toward this, <laughs> right? Like you know, that would be weird. And you would see it on Instagram all the time, right? Like, it's not a thing. But we have to think about, like, the symbolic meaning of this, right? So we're taking the story as it is. They're fleeing into this desert, and she's turned into salt in a what we're told is a desert, right? Like, in ancient times, in the, up to this time and, and some after, there are wars fought over salt, right? Because salt is being taken from the sea, mostly, Right? So salt is incredibly valuable. So one of the things that our teachers all missed is that it isn't a punishment, right? Mm. 
her because she stops existing as a person. But but beyond that, and we want to say, you know, we want her to continue personhood, but for the sake of the story, she doesn't. But like, she could have just been disintegrated, right? She could have been flown into the air. She could have been, you know, all these kinds of other things just turn into sand and just blown away. But she's not, right? She's turning toward this pillar of salt and, and left as a memorial, right? A remembrance of what is happening. And so salt is incredibly valuable. So if we decide that that what it is isn't a curse, but a blessing, then why is she being blessed and honored in this particular way, right? And so we have to, like, my community has spent a lot of time talking about this passage. I talk about this passage every week to somebody at least. And what I really, truly, to the depth of my heart believe is that they are fleeing the city, right? Sodom and Gomorrah are all that they know and can know, right? Given their limited whatever. It's more than just leaving your hometown. You're essentially leaving everyone, right? You don't know that there's like people 20 miles away if you can get there across the desert, right? Like you don't know. So they're they're being called out and fireballs, right? Like the text talks about that there's like these fireballs. And so like, as they're fleeing, like they're seeing the fireballs gathering in the heavens, you know, there's a the open Oppenheimer movie is going to be released here shortly. And I was listening to a podcast about the Manhattan Project. When the first bomb dropped, like they had two minutes and like people didn't know, but you could see it, you know, like there was this, like it's coming. So she, so they see, like they, they had seen these planes and like, anyway, it was a hot mess. So, so like, it's this kind of horrific pause, but you see these like fireballs as they're fleeing. And I have to believe that what she turns around to see is she turns around not out of disobedience, not out of an addiction to shopping or sex or anything else, but she turns around to do the only thing any of us can do in tragedy, right? And that is to bear witness. She turns around because everything she's ever known and ever loved is there, right? They've already done everything that they could, right? We assume that she's running around trying to help make, you know, trying to find other wise people, right? Other other compassionate people. They only need 10 so that she's knocking all the doors, right? She's bribing people with cookies, right? I don't know. Whatever it is that she's doing, right? They can't find them. So she turns around, rules or no rules, because her heart is in, is in Sodom and Gomorrah. And everyone she loves is in Sodom and Gomorrah. And her best friend and her school and her, you know, all these things are in Sodom and Gomorrah. So she turns around to bear witness. And I think a lot about that when we like work with people, like some of the pastoral ministry is working with people who are dying, right? I have sat with young people who are dying from like stage four cancer. If I could fix that cancer, right? I should be doing that and not being a pastor, right? But I can't, right? I sit with uh, crying trans people all the time who are terrified because our legislator is like, they're afraid of dying because at the hands of the state, and in Florida, they might, right? And like Florida's detransitioning all these people. It's like, I'm sitting with all of these people and I can't fix Florida's legislature. I can't fix Missouri's legislature. I'm dang tried. But the thing that I can do is sit with people and bear witness to their pain. And I think in turning around, she stood as a witness to their pain and watched the fireballs go down. And for that bearing witness, like that is why she's remembered honorably with this pillar of salt. And- I think, too, that that's the thing that like God calls us to do in community, right? I think it says a lot about the ways that we be in community with one another, that, like, I can't fix everything, but, boy, I can stand by you, you know? 
got you. I got you to the end, you know, and, and the ways too, that God walks along beside us, you know, I don't know that I believe that God has all this power to just fix all the things like, but I do believe that God has never left us or abandoned us. If I believe that God has never left us or abandoned us, like God too bears witness, right? And and we as people of God are called then to bear witness for one another and to the and to name and bear witness to the works of God, however we see them. First off, that's a wonderful and beautiful perspective that I have. I, I am sure that you have said that to me before, but I am absolutely hearing it in a new light in light of this story that is really difficult, right? The destruction of this entire city, and yet she turns around and she feels pity. And the interpretation that I actually, that I usually come away with from this story from that it's actually congruent with, <laughs> with, with that interpretation, I think, is that in the Midrash, in Rabbah 59, Lot's wife is named in the commentary as Edith. And Lot and Edith, according to the commentary, have four daughters rather than just the two, uh, two that are betrothed and two that are married. And so rather than, as I claimed, <laughs> the text uh, that Lot is lying, there are two virgin daughters and then there are two that are married. And the two that are married stay in the city and that Edith turns around to see them and the reason that she is instantly turned into a pillar of salt is that when she goes to look back at the city, she sees God's glory there, the back of God that only Moses has was ever allowed to see, right? It, throughout the Old Testament, there are these stories about when someone touches or sees the very nature of holiness itself, it is too great for humanity to see and live and so instantly die in these crazy, strange, mystical, metaphorical ways. And I think that you're absolutely on the money there that, that salt is not this wasting away thing, but it is the thing that we do when we cry, right? It's, it is the result of our tears that are shed in this moment for a holy reason, because she lost people who were extremely dear to her and saw God and saw God in the middle of that, of that loss, and suddenly that was too glorious for her to continue to be able to to hold a human form. Well, I mean, another important function of salt in ancient society is that's a preservative. Mm. That's the thing that keeps your meat from mm. going bad. That's, you know, that's how you pickle things. That's, salt is a, a vitally important resource. And I love this way that you bring forth this idea of, of this memorial bearing witness, because that's also echoed throughout scripture as a thing that God asks people to do after mm -hmm. something huge happens. Build this monument so that you can tell your children. When they ask, what does that mean? You can say, this is what God did here. And that is incredible and, and beautiful. And thank you so much for sharing that. We were talking about like the acts of God's creation earlier, right? And like the destruction and recreate, you know, recreation. I, I wonder, like, Ronnie, if thinking about salt as a preservative, like perhaps like they're fleeing, but they are, they like, you know, in the Noah story are going to have to, you know, restart humanity so far as they're concerned, right? So that, you know, you've got this like destruction and creation parallel there. Perhaps like the salt there is like part of the preservation, like it's, it's literally preserving the lineage of God. She may, or, you know, the lineage of God's people. Right. So it's showing that because 
And she may be past childbearing age, though, you know, again, in these times and these stories, like childbearing age can be in the hundreds. But, you know, like, nonetheless, like, you know, she isn't participating in that recreation, but she and her, like, literally is preservative for God coming again, you know, through, like, God's people. I I think, and I don't know if this is something to necessarily, like, end on, but it, it I mean, it is the, the end of the passage that is really poetic to me. Just this picture after all of this, as the dust settles, Abraham wakes up and stands there and sees this crater. And I think one of the great, never really spoken of examples of Abraham's faith is, I don't believe Abraham and Lot ever see each other again. I apologize for the fireworks. It is, of course, as we are recording the day before July 4th, which is the Midwest's <laughs> time to play its favorite game. Are they fireworks or is it a gun? Uh, <laughs> guns don't echo. That's the answer. But all of that to say, Abraham knows, I think, that there was never going to be a way to find enough people to rescue the whole city. And I, I wonder what was going through his mind and his heart. I wonder if he grieved Lot. I wonder if instead he trusted that God got Lot out. And I, either way, whether Abraham believed Lot made it or not, he continued to believe in the faithfulness of God. And I think that says a whole lot about the positive aspects of Abraham's faith as he bore witness to this incredible tragedy that he tried to avert Mm -hmm. and couldn't and continued with God and continued to see the goodness of God in the midst of something so terrible. To bring that back to a leftist reading of this text, right, is that why was hospitality so important in the ancient Near East? Well, I'm reading this book at the moment uh, because I'm doing an interview very soon. Sneak preview for you. (laughs) I'm doing an interview with Stephen Morrison, who wrote the book, All Riches Are Injustice. And really the central thesis is that sentence, that all riches (laughs) are a form of injustice, that, that capitalism is ultimately incompatible with a truly Christian faith, that Jesus calls the rich to give up their wealth and if they actually follow God, then they would no longer be the rich, right? And so, and that stems from this very ancient custom of, I have wealth so that I can share it with others. But here in Sodom, there is no interest in sharing. There is no interest in taking care of the outsider. There is no interest in anyone uh, who is not from Sodom and Gomorrah, except for Lot, because he brings in more money than he costs the city, right? Right. That is the only reason that he is allowed to exist here, because he is wealthy like the people of the city who are causing this oppression against other people, right? Where, where inhospitality is rooted in greed, in selfishness, in, in the hoarding up of wealth that ultimately hurts themselves, right? Lot was not able to sustain the earth because of his level of wealth previously, and that's why he had to go to the city in the first place. And this city is full of people just like him whose ultimate destruction results in the destruction of all the fertile land around them. Their greed destroys everything. Like Laz was saying, their entire world is destroyed because of their hubris and their greed. And what is happening today? What is happening today because a few 
people choose to wring out the bottom line rather than share with the rest of humanity. I think the liberated the, the liberatory part of this passage is that <laughs> that we don't have to live in Sodom and Gomorrah, that we still have a chance to make a better world. We don't have to live in a world that is Sodom and Gomorrah, that we can instead choose not to be like the Sodomites, the people who steal for themselves, who oppress others, who hoard so much that no one else can ever get any. But instead, we can be the people who go out and and create those oases in the desert that we've talked about before that we can be the people who who go out and create the world we want to be rather than living in a world that is destroying the planet we have been given. And the last little line here that I think is worth talking about is <laughs> uh, it's always good to look into why does the Bible say, and that is why the name of the city is this thing. Um, Zoar is the name of the city that Lot goes to. And it's funny, it's almost written like you'd expect a modern movie to be written, where like they don't tell you why what the name is until after <laughs> until everything else is like set up with a little bit of suspense that is kind of silly and fun uh, for a text that has been so <laughs> down and out zoar is literally means so small as to be insignificant it literally is not significant where lot goes it doesn't matter the destruction of sodom and gomorrah is so holistic that that going somewhere else because Lot is a wealthy man who is only able to escape with his family, it doesn't matter where he goes. It matters that justice was done in this story. So my benediction based on all of this is this. Go and enact God's liberation, finding righteous people seeking to serve God and God's work of justice. When you cannot, bear witness to pain of the world, bear witness to the suffering of one another, bear witness, I want to say like, bear witness to the suffering of God, but that's weird. Bear witness, knowing that bearing witness is holy and go and be your fullest, queerest self because those of us who are trans and queer and neurodiverse, maybe just weird. Goodness gracious, we are made in the image of a God who has created us exactly as we are and honors us as such. I think that anyone who is trying to use this story to tell you that they are right and you are wrong is fundamentally misreading the story. And I think it is so important to recognize that we are stuck in a system of sin and death called capitalism from which we cannot escape unless we are willing to work together, unless we are willing to love each other in all of those weird ways, unless we are willing to overthrow the city in which we live and replace it with a city that cares for those who are on the outside. That is how we will build the world that needs to last. And I think my biggest takeaway from uh, from Laz's benediction there is go and build community because that's how we live. Amen and amen. In horrible tragedy, we still find a God of mercy. And when humanity is at its lowest and most destructive, we still find a God who rescues people. 
Absolutely. And I think that justice and mercy, that Laz didn't want to say, bear witness to the suffering of God, but I do want to say, bear witness to the suffering of God, right? Bear witness to the fact that God suffers when we suffer, that God is is so angry at the way that Sodom has treated the down and out that God is willing to destroy the entire city, that God suffers regret over the creation of humans that could be so violent and so vile to each other that God suffers when we do not love each other and that God deeply desires justice and mercy so that we can love each other. But that doesn't mean allowing us to continue to hurt each other. <laughs> it doesn't mean allowing us to continue to cling to wealth that is stolen from the, from other people. Justice and mercy go hand in hand because you cannot love while stealing the bread of your neighbor. You cannot love while refusing your neighbor a drink of water. You cannot love while you ignore the homeless person beside you. You cannot love unless we enact justice as well. Amen. Well, thank you, Ronnie and Lazarus, for giving us the time and really diving into this story that is so often used against us. It was absolutely wonderful to have you all a part of this conversation. And thank you, dear listener, for giving your close attention to this story that has so often been used and misused throughout history against us that now we are retaking to claim as our own form of liberation. Now, past Micah, take it away. Thank you, future Micah, and of course you, our wonderful listener. Together we have made a wonderful and growing community on Discord that I look forward to being a part of every day. Your generous support on Patreon has already greatly increased the quality of our podcast, including this very outro. As an extra little thank you, you can get episodes early along with a bunch of other cool perks. Please follow the link in the show notes to join our Discord, Patreon, and all of the other things mentioned throughout this episode. If you would like to reach me directly, you can reach me through the Discord or by email at thewordinblackandred at gmail.com. Now, future Micah, say the profound shit. And thank you, past Micah. Now, friends, go and stand with those who are being abused by the city in which you live. Stand against the powers that seek to destroy them, and if need be, be destroyed with them. And if we are the few who will receive mercy out of these cities, let us go out and bear witness that justice and mercy must walk hand in hand. And we are God's justice and mercy in the world. Shalom. Shalom.